crime is now illegal. This week, the province and EPS held a press conference to issue a new ban on crime. That'll fix it. Plus, Boyle Street will be out of its location on September 30th, and the city will be short just over $70 million this year. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 233. If the news is to be believed, Mac, the train is getting ever so close to opening. Uh, I saw a reporting on uh, CBC this week just highlighting the absolute catastrophe that this LRT has caused in its, you know, several decades of testing. Mm. Uh, the 10 collisions it's had with vehicles. And I noticed that it was framed as collisions with vehicles, not cars driving into a train. Yeah, I don't know exactly understand how the train itself can collide with vehicles. I mean, the train is on a track and it has warning signs and others. It's it's the cars. Poor the train frame. has a lot of like, I'm not hitting you, can't get mad energy. You know, it's <laughs> right. waving its arms around. But indeed, Edmontonians do get mad. The train drama continues to go on. And speaking of drama, you know, one of my favorite uh, gimmicks in drama shows and comedy shows is the will they, won't they. And Mac, this week, the Edmonton Community Foundation really wants us to will. That's right. This episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, which is presenting Wills Week from October 2nd to 6th. Wills Week is a series of free online and in-person seminars from Alberta Wills and Estates Lawyers on the importance of having an up-to-date will. You can find out more about that event and register at ecfoundation.org slash wills week. Mac, I gotta say, I'm usually up to date with the festivals in Edmonton. I like to go to the Fringe. I know that K-Days existed. Taste of Edmonton bankrupts me on a regular basis. <laughs> but um, gotta say, Wills Week is a new one to me. Wills Week has been going for a number of years. I've been in the past, actually, when I decided I needed to be a responsible adult and learn about getting a will written and, and all that good stuff. I decided to go and I actually found it really informative. I remember in a couple of the sessions we went to, my wife and I definitely seemed like the youngest people in the room. Um, but that wasn't universal. There was lots of other young folks throughout the uh, various sessions there to learn as well. And it was, it was really informative, actually. Like I found it really helpful just to get that introduction from people who actually know what they're talking about, you know, instead of just asking the AI or Google or whatever. Okay. So you've said the thing, we've done the ad read. Now the important question, Mac, did you create a will after that? Absolutely. Yep. Wow. Okay. So you went back and did your homework too. Yeah. That's a glowing endorsement if I've ever heard one. Yeah, no, it, it was uh, it was an important part of the journey and it, it definitely led us to follow through. So there I am. One point for me being a responsible adult. Of course, to find out more about Wills Week, you can head to ecfoundation.org and click on Wills Week. Well, wills are very useful for, you know, the end of your life, unfortunately. And Boyle Street, at least its current location, seems to be at the end of its life as well. We learned this week that on September 30th, Boyle Street Community Services will cease to operate out of its current location just behind Rogers Place. Yeah, Boyle Street's been in that building for a very long time, and we've known for a while that they were planning to move. They've, of course, been working on a new facility. We've talked about that on the show before. It's called the King Thunderbird Center. It's been delayed a couple of times, and so it's not expected to be ready until fall of next year, 2024. So everyone was a bit surprised this week when we heard that actually this September, September 30th, when its current lease expires, they're going to be looking for somewhere else to provide the very important 
programming and services that they offer. And Boyle Street and the Oilers, which is the large organization that has loomed over them a little bit, have had an interesting relationship because we understand that the the lease is maybe a dollar a month. It's a very nominal rate. The Oilers have supported this initiative to move to a new facility, unsurprisingly, because they want to develop this land for their own uses, right? So they contributed $5 million to this new center. And the Community Foundation, the Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation, has contributed $10 million. So you know, there's questions about whether or not they should do that, because really they're just trying to get this social service agency out of this property so they can develop it into something else for people who Boyle Street does not serve. Uh, let's put it that way. But that wasn't expected to happen till you know, next year, as I said. So it was surprising that all of a sudden they have to leave. Yeah. And they have to leave in sort of like an urgent fashion. This wasn't a calm press release this week. It was a rumor mill followed by a lot of consternation about almost like haphazard scrambling. And like you said, we've known that September 30th was coming. I'm sure Boyle Street has known that September 30th was coming for a long time. But the level of scramble that's occurring right now leads me to believe that Boyle Street expected to stay. Uh, And in fact, the uh, OEG has said that they have offered to extend the nominal lease, which once again, we assume to be about a dollar a month for, you know, the foreseeable future until they're into King Thunderbird Center. But Boyle Street has said that it is not financially viable to stay. And that's one of those things that makes you go, hmm, both sides have been very quiet. They've said we can't disclose for contractual reasons. At least we believe that there has to be some sort of condition that has been levied upon Boyle Street. But that condition has to be financial in some way or resource based in some way. Otherwise, Boyle Street probably would have said that it's not financially viable to stay in almost free in the location. So there's not really a whole lot of clarity from anyone involved this week. Yeah, and I can't imagine their other costs would have changed that dramatically, right, from the previous lease. So whatever they have to pay in terms of utilities and insurance and all the rest of it, you know, it's probably gone up, but I can't imagine it's gone up so much that it's going to destroy their ability to operate there. Wall Street was really quick to come out and say, we're not getting evicted. Because that's what everybody assumes here, right? You you first hear about this news, they're being forced to leave their facility, and there's a definite power imbalance here, right? And so you sort of assume that OEG has decided to charge them an arm and a leg and they can't make it work. But that doesn't appear to be the case. I did think it was interesting that Boyle Street, in some of its communications this week, talked about how it's raised $28.5 million for this new facility, and it called on all orders of government to help raise the remaining $5 million that's needed. It almost seemed a little strategic uh, to try to uh, encourage that project to get over the goal line in terms of funding. But I have to imagine if that was really the issue, they probably could have worked something out with the Oilers to make that happen more quickly. They've already shown a, a desire and a willingness to support them to, to move out of that location. So it's a bit confusing. And I'm, I'm left thinking that there's not always a good guy and a bad guy. And, and in this case, it's not clear if there is a good guy and a bad guy. It just seems like a really disorganized situation. Of course, the people who benefit least from all of this confusion are the folks that Boyle Street serves. The timing is horrible, right? We have a a housing crisis right now. There's the opioid crisis, and it's about to be winter. They've talked about maybe working with other service providers, the Bissell Center or the Hope or other other locations to help uh, continue their programming. But those facilities don't have a lot of extra room either. So what happens to the folks that Boyle Street serves on a regular basis if they don't have a home? 
where are they going to go? Yeah, you mentioned that there's not really a good guy and a bad guy, at least obviously to us yeah. in this scenario. And I disagree with that. I think there's a very obvious bad guy here, and it's the province that's not funding social services. It's easy to get into the minutiae of this and think, okay, the Oilers are evicting or not evicting these people out of a certain location. Oh, Boyle Street Community Services aren't working hard enough to make their dollars go far enough. You can say a lot of things, but at the end of the day, these are critical social services to fund basic human needs like food, like shelter, like sanitation, like healthcare. This should be a provincial responsibility. It shouldn't be on a community organization to do any of this work. And if a community organization is doing any of this work, it should be fully funded by the order of government explicitly responsible for providing these services. The province has announced this week that they're really stepping up and they're putting in $16 million to improve affordable housing for government-owned affordable housing locations that weren't even open right now. That's a pitiful amount of money. And in a housing crisis, to not have units operational right now, it really shows that this is not something that the provincial government takes seriously. Like you said, the people that will bear the brunt of this, especially this winter, which I expect, given all the things you mentioned, will be probably the worst winter on record in terms of this humanitarian crisis that we're seeing in our city. I think it's completely negligent to not have provincial ministers stepping up and just solving this problem. I agree with you. This is a provincial responsibility. I think most of city council would agree with you that this is a provincial responsibility, but it's also not a new thing for our provincial government to not be at the table supporting this kind of thing. And so we have to make the best with the situation that we've got. Unfortunately, that means fundraising. It means the city approving this facility. Perhaps there's more the city of Edmonton could be doing on this to try and resolve this situation. I expect we'll hear council, you know, talk about this in upcoming meetings. And of course, you know, we should point out that this project might have been done already were it not for pushback from the community about this new facility multiple times, right, that has, you know, delayed the project. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be recourse for people who want to challenge projects like we have systems in place for a reason. But the fact remains, this could have been avoided potentially had that facility opened when it was originally planted. You mentioned right there, might have been, could have. A lot of this whole thing is speculative. Boyle Street and the OEG have been very, very tight-lipped about the reality of either of these situations. Uh, we haven't heard much from city council. It does sound like many members, like the mayor, were as surprised to hear this as we were. Throughout this whole discussion, there is very limited information. And I think that is one of the biggest indictments, is we have this organization providing social services critically to a very vulnerable sector of our population. And they're core tenets of their operation, how they exist in the physical space is governed by confidential agreements with a private for-profit organization. And that's just like, as a taxpayer, as someone in this community, that feels real ick. Problematic, to say the least. Of course, we had mentioned that this whole thing felt chaotic, and it was chaotic because there wasn't a press release. This wasn't discovered because an organization stepped forward and said, hey, Heads up, this thing is happening. At a separate event this week, talking about safer public spaces and zero tolerance, Keith Geryan had just asked a question say, hey, I heard a rumor about Boyle Street. Mm -hmm. And that was how everyone found out about this. So let's talk a little bit about the zero tolerance event. This is the one that I'm calling the crime is now illegal event. Yeah, the chief of police, Dale McPhee, posted something on his LinkedIn profile over the weekend saying that 
things were changing. They were going to have a big announcement. The province put out a news release saying they were going to have this press conference. Everyone was going to be there. The ministers, the mayor, the police chief. It was one o'clock on Monday. Troy, news release comes and goes. And I got to say, it was a whole lot of nothing, really, in the end. What we heard is that the provincial government has this new zero tolerance for crime approach. And the main change there is that Crown prosecutors will create these targeted units to try to prosecute violent offenders focused on Edmonton and Calgary, and they're going to try and change some of the bail protocols to allow um, prosecutors to argue for different conditions. Public safety is perhaps at risk. So there's, you know, some change there, I suppose, but it doesn't sound like a dramatic transformation. And then the police service at the same time has launched this new thing called Safer Public Spaces. And the police said this new approach is aimed at reducing violence and addressing public drug use. And, you know, they really want to try and decrease the amount of social disorder and stuff that is visible out on the streets. But again, not really clear what they're doing. I hear this every time that a police officer or a public official or even a government minister says things like, you know, we need to crack down or there's zero tolerance or anything of the like, because... Ostensibly, that must mean that right now you are not. Right now you are tolerating crime. And I don't think there was anyone in the city that said, hey, Chief Dale McPhee, could you just, you know, for a few years, not prosecute violent offenders? Could we just tolerate violent offenses just for a little bit? No one was asking for that. So if the police were doing that, that's bad. And that's a story. And if they weren't doing that, then this was the most nothing burger of a press conference. Like you said, there was no strategy. There was no deployment changes. There was no talks about reallocating resources. It was just rah, rah, hurrah, crime is over without any clear indication of how they were going to get there. I mean, the chief has said in the past on the record to the media that he's tired of tripping over people doing drugs on the street as he goes to his office downtown. So I guess he wasn't doing anything about this before, and maybe he will no longer trip over those people. But I have to say, when I read the backgrounder about the safer public spaces, it really felt to me like this is a PR exercise. This is a reaction to consistent and ongoing concern and complaints from the public about how visible the situation is in Edmonton. People without a home, people suffering with addictions, If you read the backgrounder, it says the police actions include higher visibility of police and partners within public spaces. This is something that we hear all the time. There's going to be more boots on the ground. There's going to be more officers. It doesn't actually seem like there are, Troy. I mean, there's (laughs) no more police visibility than there ever was. So I remain skeptical of that. There's a couple of other things in here that really caught my eye. Educating the public on placement of activities and regular correction of misinformation regarding EPS activities, which is nothing but PR, and then increased transparency for officers and the public through the adoption of body-worn cameras. In fact, the police has shown opposition to such a thing, but are only doing it because the province has forced them to. Right. And then my favorite... One of all, this comes up all the time when this sort of zero tolerance thing happens as well, streamlining administrative and judicial processes in partnership with the government of Alberta, streamlining criminal intelligence for the most up-to-date data to inform enforcement targets. There's always this discussion about, we need to better coordinate our organizations. And I just, every time, can't help but think, surely the police service, the city, the province, all of the other social service agencies, transit, everybody who needs to be connected 
is connected, probably on a first name basis. What other coordination needs to happen? If what they have said they are about to do is a meaningful change, then this is an embarrassing press conference. This is an admission of guilt for the past decade of extreme budget increases with no results. When I saw this, though, it got me thinking, do you remember how, you know, two of our members of city council undermined the rest of city council to participate in a task force on crime and well-being in the city of Edmonton? How could I forget? In order to get things done, to move the needle. If there's seats at the table, we have to be there because we need action now. Mac, what has this task force accomplished? And where were they at this press conference? I mean, the answer to your question is nothing, essentially. I don't know that the task force has put out any recommendations, has had any impact in terms of uh, service delivery, in terms of funding, anything like that. Uh, Councillors Hamilton and Cartmel, who are the two you're referring to, to my knowledge, have not commented on this at all and said anything about this new, safer approach. It really just seems like it's a exercise in you know trying to earn points from the public for saying they're going to have a tough approach on crime. And it just is lacking in substantive action to back that up. And of course, dueling with this is the lawsuit that's being levied against the city of Edmonton, which would ostensibly prohibit the city of Edmonton from their encampment dismantling strategy. A lot of this announcement was coded language. Mm -hmm. Open air drug use sounds a lot like we're dismantling encampments and people tending. It's very coded dog whistle language. The courts could have something to say about that. So part of me wonders if this press release is in some ways preemptive, um, setting the stage for a media or a court battle uh, about this very issue, about to what extent is drug use in public spaces permitted? Because if someone has nowhere to go and someone has an addiction, what do you do? Some in the province may say mandatory treatment. Mm -hmm. I can see that being a factor and all playing into this zero tolerance approach and setting the stage for that. Yeah, I think that's a good a, a good assessment of it. The language in this about it being unacceptable and that they're not going to take it anymore and they're going to have an aggressive approach. Like all of this language is concerning because it sounds like they're going to start rounding people up off the street who have every right to be on a public street for questionable reasons and just trying to move them out of the way so they're not visible to the suburbanites who want to come downtown for you know one hour a, a week for their event or whatever it is like i'm being facetious but you know what i mean right like i think there's really concerning language in here uh, about the approach they're going to take again without real clear action to back it up and i hope that's something that the police commission and city council will be following up on. We did get a follow-up uh, from city administration this week about how our budget is going. The end of last year was quite a contentious budget debate. You'll recall we passed OP12, which was city council's direction to find $60 million in savings and reallocate $240 million to city priorities. And city administration says, great, uh, we've got this. OP12 is guiding our uh, tasks going forward. We're really focusing on OP12. And then they said, by the way, city council, we're $73 million in the hole. Yeah, this is what they're projecting for the end of the year. Uh, so that works out to about 2.6% of the overall tax-supported budget. It's not an insignificant amount. What Andre Corbold, the city manager, said they will do is continue to curb discretionary spending 
but they're already doing that. So there's definitely going to be some challenges. Taxes are going up or there's going to be some more substantial cuts than what we were anticipating with OP12. And the mayor, you know, this week said that he anticipates it's going to be a really tough budget going into November and that they're going to have to tap into the reserves. But if you read through the report, the rainy day fund that we have is above the minimum allowed balance, but it's pretty close. We cannot fund that entire deficit with the financial stabilization reserve if we want to have anything left in there for its purpose, which is financial stabilization, deal with these emerging issues, right? So so that's pretty concerning. The other thing that was really interesting, Troy, about this deficit is that a good chunk of it, probably about 43 million of the 73 million is due to salary settlements. What? Who? Whose salary was settled, Mac? Well, there's more to come, but yes, the recent Edmonton Police Service settlements are a big chunk of this. And this is, again, a reason why that should have been incorporated into the police funding formula, because ultimately this is going to happen again, right? Taxpayers are going to have to deal with this unknown uh, large amount that will get added on top of everything else. And of course, these aren't the only salary settlements. Other unions within the city of Edmonton organization are still also negotiating their salaries. And, you know, unions like to use other unions as examples. So one bargaining unit getting a salary increase often can be instructive for another bargaining unit. So I would expect this 73 million number to increase over the next couple of years as more salary settlements come down the line in a very high inflationary environment. I'm not advocating that union workers should get salary cuts. I'm just saying the reality is we haven't budgeted for those. And that could be very upsetting to some members of Edmonton City Council as they go look at their pocketbooks and find them very, very vacant. Yeah. And that's going to mean cuts probably, right? It's going to mean a combination of taxes higher than people want to see, increases higher than people want to see, and then probably some cuts. And it might even mean some cuts on the capital side of things, because we know, of course, when we borrow money to build capital projects, it does have an operating impact. And in fact, the administration says that 2023 is probably going to be one of the higher years in terms of capital spending. They're thinking about $1.8 billion this year alone. And because there's some really major projects under underway, the Valley Line West LRT, the Yellowhead Trail Freeway conversion, you know, there's some big things that we're spending money on. And all of that does add up. Now, Mac, I don't have a lot to say about this next piece. I think the headline itself says enough, but administration uh, under the direction of Councillor Salvador has gone through and done a report on downtown parking lots. And Mac, they found that of 275 surface parking lots in downtown Edmonton, only about 30 are permitted legal parking lots. This seems like a slam dunk, right? We've got 245 surface lots that we should go after to seek permits or do something else with it. But of course, that is not administration's recommendation here. In fact, administration recommends against seeking permits or levying fines against the businesses that are operating illegally. Right. They said, forcing the closure of parking lots is unlikely to compel a landowner to develop a lot. If surface parking lots are closed, it creates vacant land, which could then be subjected to social disorder. Are they under the impression that parking lots are a bastion of legality? (laughs) (laughs) I don't really understand this assessment from them at all. I mean, there's already encampments. There's already social disorder. Is closing a bunch of parking lots that are an eyesore going to do much to change that? Not dramatically. And why is closing the lot the only option? 
why don't we just tax them more? Or why don't we just levy a fine for operating a business illegally in the city of Edmonton, as we should be doing? The fact that we are debating whether to levy a fine for breaking a bylaw is absurd to me, especially given the podcast episode, you know, crime is now illegal. Hey, someone's violated a law. Use the prescribed punishment. Yeah. And in this case, I find myself in 100% agreement with the Downtown Business Association, right? Which said they don't actually want the parking lots to all be closed or anything. They want the city to enforce the absence of development permits and business licenses. And they want owners to make sure that these places are safe and attractive. It's a real problem for everything the DBA wants to see happen downtown to continually have these undeveloped and ugly parking lots. I think they're right that these things should be better. Now, the question becomes, like, what are the the right tools to go and do that? But as you say, it feels like we already have tools to go and do that. If we did want to close some of those, though, I'm not opposed to that either. It's not like we have a lack of parking downtown. There's more than enough parking for everyone, even if we went and closed, you know, the worst offenders uh, in this 275. And let's be real. You know, a lot of the parking lots that are operating illegally are in areas that you don't want to park your car anyway, right? Yeah. If we're talking about the people who are complaining about no parking downtown when they're going to the Rogers Place Arena, they are not walking 15 blocks to park behind a pharmacy in Chinatown. I do not share administration's view here that vacant land that offers profit to a, an entity illegally is better than vacant land that doesn't. Uh, as far as I'm concerned from the city's perspective, one of those is worse, and that's the one where illegal businesses are operating within the city. And we already have tools to use vacant land. We have some rules around using vacant land for agricultural purposes. You know, we could at minimum just enforce some standards once they have a permit on the upkeep of these locations, right? I understand that maybe the market conditions are not conducive to developing all of this property. And city council, as we've talked about before, has a role to play there too. Instead of approving 60-story towers, you could approve three 20-story towers and have a potentially better positive impact on uh, those undeveloped lots. So there's there's other tools at play here too that could be put to use. I think the question is just how quickly and, and what exactly are we going to do about this? But something has to be done about all of these empty lots. It's not helping anyone except for those illegal businesses uh, to allow them to continue operating the way that they are. Of course, when we look around at all these vacant, empty asphalt lots, my eye sees, imagine how much housing that could be. And mm. we're in an affordable housing crisis in Canada. And Councillor Tim Cartmel, or should I say, in the context of this article, future mayoral candidate Tim Cartmel, uh, took to post media to write, I'm going to issue a hot take here, Mac. The most boring column I have ever read in my entire life about the need for affordable housing. It doesn't propose any actions. It doesn't propose any solutions. It doesn't even really talk impassioned about anything. It is checking a box to say that Tim Cartmel supports affordable housing. And I think that's why no one talked about it this week. I would just challenge that I'm not sure it's 100% clear from this column that Cartmel supports affordable housing. What he seems to be in support of is increasing the housing supply, which he believes will address affordable housing. And there's a little bit of nuance there. But I think you're right. There aren't really any other solutions in here, aside from a very vague, we should increase the housing supply citywide. I mean, he even talks about things that on their face have nothing really to do with this problem. Uh, delivering and maintaining core municipal services well, proactively attracting new business investment opportunities. Like, 
really broad campaign style types of statements, right, are his, you know, proposed actions. And the other thing that stood out to me in his column is he said that this is not a time to take our eye off the ball. This is not a time for complacency. And I'm just not sure where he's sensing this complacency. We talk an awful lot about housing. Council regularly has conversations about what can be done. Just this week, we got some additional funding from the federal government to build some affordable housing. It's a pittance, but the one you mentioned from the province, $16 million (laughs) also happened this week. Like there is things happening. And yes, we can always do more, but I don't get the same sense of complacency that he seems to be alluding to. Something that I've noticed as a trend across the country, conservative politicians realizing that they're not held to account for their past actions. I'm thinking specifically, if you look at Pierre Paulev, his entire broad strokes of his campaign is around affordable housing right now and things like upzoning around transit. And he's saying all the right words that urbanists tend to support. The problem is when you look at his record in supporting these initiatives federally, they never quite stack up. I look at Tim Cartmel's article talking about how we need mass transit initiatives to get there. Well, he was the one leading the charge to shut down our biggest mass transit initiative in Edmonton's history, much to the consternation of council at the time. I look to his comments about zoning. We'll see at public hearing. Uh, I know Tim Cartmel has been broadly supportive of the work of the zoning bylaw renewal. But when push comes to shove and there are more well-off people complaining about an eight-story house next to theirs. Um, I'll be interested to see how the votes go. And I think back to budget two, when Tim Cartmel was one of the very few on council to vote against the entire budget after spending the entire budget just racking up the tab. And I think even further to his staunch advocacy of expansion of Terwilliger Drive, which only begets what? more single-family sprawl, and car use, which are the biggest drivers of housing unaffordability in our country. I do not see walking the walk while he's talking the talk here. Just today, as we're recording, Mac, I don't know if you saw Jody Gondek, the uh, mayor of Calgary. Uh, she tweeted the letter that she got from the Minister of Housing federally. There was some, you know, flowery language at the start, but then he made clear, if the city of Calgary doesn't end exclusionary zoning, They will not get federal housing dollars for affordable housing. Full stop. And I have never seen such a strong influence of municipal policy from federal funding like that before. This is novel to me, but it shows that the federal government is taking it very seriously and realizing that municipal zoning is a huge component of housing unaffordability. This is interesting to me because it is showing that other orders of government are taking this seriously. Of course, Edmonton's already miles ahead of this. We were one of the first to end parking minimums and our entire zoning bylaw renewal is built around this idea of ending exclusionary zoning. We're going to see in the next couple of years, extremely rapid movement on this, which goes to show exactly what you're saying about Tim Carmel. I don't actually see what the urgency or the complacency is. I see a lot of very rapid, coordinated movement from all levels of government. Well, maybe not from the province, but yeah, I, I think you're right <laughs> from from the federal government for sure. So this is, you know, an effect of this $4 billion housing accelerator fund that the federal government announced more formally this week. We knew that this was coming since the last budget, but, you know, now it's there for municipalities. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talked about London, Ontario, which is the first recipient of money from here. He said what they're doing is visionary and he challenged municipalities across the country to step up. Those were his words, step up. So 
starting to see some more strong language from the federal government. There's money on the table. Municipalities can uh, go after this and uh, and try to use that to help address this challenge in their cities. But that's what it's going to take, not platitudes in an op-ed that really seemed geared toward a future mayoral campaign. And, it, you know, we shouldn't discount that that's a very uh, likely scenario. We talked about following the last municipal election, how widely supported Tim Cartmel was. He had some of the strongest support of any candidate running in the race outside of the mayoral race, and more than many of the mayoral candidates themselves, actually. So there are a lot of folks who I think are supportive of what uh, Tim Cartmel is pushing for. I just hope that in this remaining time of this term, which is quite a while still, uh, <laughs> that he can walk the walk the walk as well as talk the talk, as you say. And I just have to say, to all members of Edmonton City Council, this podcast very much appreciates that an election period is, you know, a couple months tops, all right? It is two years in. We're not starting election campaigns yet. We we can't. We can't handle it. Not ready. Not ready. Though, you should get ready. Strap in. Put on your fire suit. Get your fire extinguishers ready because we're about to jump into the rapid fire segment. A task force led by Lisa Raitt and former Mayor Don Iveson is aiming to present solutions to climate and affordable housing issues in the city. The issue is near and dear to the longtime councillor, then Mayor's heart, who basically lived in City Hall for over a decade and is finding that glass pyramids are actually quite expensive on the private market. The long-term storage of nuclear waste has long been an issue, as the waste can remain active for many generations. So how can you warn humans who may not speak the same language or have the same understanding to avoid the area? This puzzle has been the subject of research by linguists, artists, and behavioral scientists, and now a group of them at the University of Alberta are ready to take the next step and tackle an even more difficult, seemingly impossible problem. How to communicate to Edmonton drivers that they shouldn't drive into a train. Of the 275 service parking lots in downtown Edmonton, only about 30 have permits, according to a report destined for Urban Planning Committee next week. While administration is not recommending fining the illegal lots nor requiring permits, they say they're open to all other avenues, including their toolbox of known great solutions like increasing fines for fare evasion on transit, making street parking downtown completely free, and removing protected bike lanes. Speaking Municipally, as you know, is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. And if you want to start your day informed, you should definitely, if you haven't already, check out The Pulse, which is our daily news briefing. It tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning, including things about what's happening at City Hall and coverage of all of our beats, business, tech, food, and much, much more. Uh, you can find that and all of our other work at edmonton.taproot.news. And that's all for this week. Um, go enjoy your parking lots while they last, I guess, dear listener. Uh, we'll see you next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Matt. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.